tried to hide you and steal you away Death tried to keep you inside of the grave The enemy fought you He tried but he lost You cannot be stopped When we cried for freedom You tore down the walls The weight of our burdens You carried it all I
count on one thing The same God that never fails Will not fail me now You won't fail me now In the waiting The same God is never late Is working all things out You're working all things out And yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley and yes i will bless your name and yes i will sing for joy when my heart is heavy in all my days yes i I count on one thing, the same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late is working all things out. You're working all things out. And yes, I will lift you high. In the lowest valley, yes, I will bless your name. And yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy in all my days. Oh, yes, I will. And I choose to praise, to glorify, glorify the name above all Nothing is steady against And I choose to praise And to glorify, glorify The name above all names Oh, that nothing is steady against And yes, I will lift you high In the lowest valley And yes, I will bless your name Oh, and yes, I That nothing can stand against, and I choose to praise and to glorify, glorify the name above all names. That nothing can stand against. No, nothing can stand against Your name. No, nothing can stand against Your name.
Moment on, 
join with heaven's song. We're singing out in endless
Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease And fill the world with heaven's peace Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel Shall come to God of creation, we're at the start before the beginning of time. With no point of reference, He spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. As you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath, evolving in pursuit of what you said. If it all reveals your nature, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you made. Precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. So will I. Listen, you're a good father. Cause you're a good, good father It's who you are 
lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah and hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free and hallelujah. Death is lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe And out of the silence The roaring lion Declared the grave has no claim on me And then came the morning It sealed the promise Cause your buried body It began to breathe Oh, and out of the silence The roaring land Declared the grave Has no claim on me Yes, Jesus, yours Is the Thank you for the fact that we get to be in your presence tonight. And uh, I just pray that you'd go before us, that you would just be the one that leads this time. Uh, speak through your word. And we ask that you would do a mighty work in each one of our souls and that we would know you more when we leave here tonight. May we be a people that's hungry for you, um, desiring to seek after you, to worship you. And uh, we just want you to be exalted tonight in your name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, welcome to Living Truth. Um, we, this has been just a crazy uh, 
crazy season, and I was just filling out some paperwork this morning, and I put the date down on the, the paper, and I was like, wow, we're a third of the way through December, and uh, before we know it, Christmas will be here, and then it'll be over and done with with 2020. I don't know about you, but that sounds good to me. Uh, this year has been interesting, to say the least, <laughs> um, but you know, we have people who are watching via our live stream right now, and um, you know, those who are here in person, and um, we do just pray that if you're watching from home, you would know that we are thinking about you, and um, really there are many who have not been back to the church since uh, the pandemic first started, and you know, we've had to jump through some some hoops as a church, and just kind of in our own personal lives, I think many of us have had to navigate things we've never navigated before. Um, it's just an interesting time. Um, but nonetheless, we are moving forward with some Christmas events that are just around the corner now. So um, I wanted to just share with you one event that's coming up. Uh, Tanya, if you want to come up, we can kind of, you can elaborate on some of the stuff. But basically on um, December 20th, which is now 11 days away. Uh, yeah. Um, so less than two weeks on Sunday. That's a Sunday, right? Um, we are doing a Christmas concert. So it'll be like, it's going to be an acoustic concert. Um, I'm going to be playing some original Christmas songs that I've written and then um, some classic Christmas songs as well, like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, and uh, kind of a whole slew of Christmas songs we all know and love to sing. Uh, so we'll have a Christmas kind of time of worship slash concert here in the sanctuary, and then uh, we'll move outside, and there's going to be a really cool event, and this is a family event, and so the whole thing is for families, anybody of any age, but um, we're going to have crafts and all sorts of cool stuff for the kids outside, and it's going to be a Bethlehem village, so if you want to elaborate A Bethlehem on that. village, so influencers are really big in our culture, but we just want to be reminded of our stable influence, that Jesus Christ, who was born in a stable, came. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he should be our biggest influencer. So we are going to travel back in time, and we're going to walk through a Bethlehem village and just kind of be reminded of that night and reminded of our Savior who came to us as a baby. So we're going to have crafts. We're going to have hot chocolate. So if it's cold, you can get warmed up. We're going to have food. We're going to have... Um, cookies that you can decorate and the kids can decorate, ornaments you can take. So it's going to be a fun night for the whole family. So the concert starts at five, right? Then we'll go outside and then our Bethlehem Village, our stable influence event will last till eight o'clock. So we want to just invite you all to come out, bring your friends and neighbors if if they want to, <laughs> if they'll come out. Yeah. So come in and just spend time with your Living Truth family for Christmas. Yeah. So this will be a really cool event for like your family, your neighbors, maybe if they feel like they have nothing to do. Um, I know that even with our Harvest Fest um, this past Halloween, you know, we had a lot of people come because there really wasn't much for them to do with their families because of everything going on. So um, we are taking extra steps to make it a safe environment for everybody. And, um, you know, we know there's a, real, there's a real virus and there are real things, but we are aware of that and, and we, we don't want to stop everything and operate out of fear either. So um, we're trying to find that balance. And I would just ask, you know, um, just personally that you would pray for us as your pastors because um, navigating these times have been interesting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's not a secret that really we aren't even supposed to be open, you know, according to the mandates that have been put out. And so it's a very strange time. There are many churches that have taken the stand to stay open. There are also churches that have decided to close. And 
um, we would be the first person to stand with them as well if they feel that that's what's best for their church body at this time. So uh, interesting time, um, but you know, thank you for being here. Thank you for watching via the live stream. And um, we pray that you guys would be getting in the word um, far more than just on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. And that's how the church will grow. It really can't be dependent on just Sundays. Amen? Amen. 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 So I want you guys stand and say hello to someone. And just don't forget to invite somebody on the 20th. Stand and say hello. Well, good evening, everyone. Glad you guys are here with us, uh, both in the sanctuary and online. I'm glad you guys can join us. We're going to be looking at part two tonight of Psalm 37, which we talked about last week and kind of got into just the first 11 verses there of this uh, quite long psalm, 40 verses. And we looked at uh, what's really our responsibility, what's our call, what are our commands, what's required of us in the midst of this crazy world, in the midst of the evil that's going on, in the midst of the fretting that we so easily do, what's the, uh, the prescription or the remedy for that? I'm happy to be back here again. It's actually the first time I've done a two-part uh, message. I was actually scheduled to do one the last time that I spoke. Uh, I think it was in July, July 1st. And uh, right before I went up the first week, I remember telling Pastor Michael, I said, you know, I just, I don't have a good feeling about doing a second part. My, my wife's pregnant and her, her due date's about three weeks away. So I ended up just doing a, a part one. And 48 hours after that, my wife goes into labor. And interestingly enough, that message on Joshua was talking about, you know, trusting in, in a plan that doesn't seem possible. Trusting in the Lord praising the Lord in, in the midst of uh, difficult times. And so as I did this message last week, I, I just kept praying this week, Lord, please, not again. Please, please don't let anything happen that you're going to put me in this, this trial, this, this difficult thing. And we've got quite a few verses to cover, so we'll, we'll try to get into it here quickly. But church, would you pray with me as we, uh, as we dig in? Lord, thank you so much uh, for this time and for this place for the privilege and ability we have to come and study your word. God, we ask that you would be with us now. Would you send your spirit to help lead us and guide us? Would you, would you guide the words that come out of my mouth, Lord? And for all the ears that hear this message, Lord, would you open them up? And would your spirit allow it to penetrate into their hearts and minds? Lord, may your word do more than just um, go into our minds, but really into our hearts. May it transform us. May we become doers of your word, Lord. And we just ask that you would be with us again at this time, Lord. Lead, guide, and direct us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so last week, if, if you remember, we talked about the overarching theme of this psalm is this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Essentially, it's a, a contrast that we see between good and evil. 
And the fact of the matter is that good and evil have always existed, and good and evil always will exist, so long as we are here on this earth. And throughout this psalm and throughout other psalms, and specifically through the Proverbs as well, we really see this idea that the wicked and the evil, it seems to prevail. For one reason or another, it seems to prevail. But we know from verse 7 that we looked at last week, um, we're not to fret because of those who prosper in their way or seemingly prosper in their way. Why? Because it's yet for a short while, yet for a little while. Their time will come to an end. And back in 7, it says, uh, don't fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. So we're going to take a little bit of a look here at what the wicked do. We're going to break the psalm down a little bit more topically than, than verse by verse. So first, what the wicked do? What are the actions that are going on? Well, it says that they carry out wicked schemes. Speaking of the wicked schemes, uh, the term most often denotes that they're evil plans, they're schemes. These aren't things that um, just necessarily happen by chance, not like someone does something and then there's this, this unintended repercussion, but there's actually this evil plotting that is going on. And it's these, these plots that humanity specifically devises against other humanity, against other humans, and things that are basically contrary to God's decrees, to God's law. Flip with me, please, back to Psalm 10, just a few pages. We're going to look at another example of this. In Psalm 10, starting in verse 2, it says, In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in, his haughtiness, in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him, the Lord. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the hiding places. He kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. A commentator writes on this psalm and says, I think what emerges is a picture of oppression. Wicked, powerful men are oppressing and persecuting the poor, the needy, the humble, innocent people in the psalmist's culture. These wicked men have absolutely no fear of God. They oppress the poor and they get away with it. And because they keep getting away with their injustices, they come to have a great amount of confidence in their belief that God isn't aware of what they're doing. They've actually convinced themselves that God won't punish them for their evil. What a scary place to be, right? To be so comfortable in this sin and this rebellion against God, to believe that he doesn't exist, to believe that he doesn't see, to believe that he won't judge. But we know ultimately that that judgment is coming. If we flip back to Psalm 37. If we look at verse 12, it says, The wicked 
plot against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The idea of plotting is, is again, kind of a premeditated idea to come up with this plan or the scheme of evil and gnashes at him with his teeth. That term literally means to, to grind your teeth in anger at someone. Have you ever seen that before? Have you ever seen anybody that mad? Kind of just grinding their teeth, kind of gritting. I picture like a, a dog maybe as a kind of growling, as a seeking to, uh, to go after you. Isn't it interesting that people tend to gnash their teeth, grind their teeth at Christians at times? It seems that maybe there's kind of a disproportionate way that that happens. It, of course, happens uh, to non-Christians as well, but seemingly it happens maybe a little bit more so to Christians. This clearly was going on, you know, at this time, but have we seen this today? Have we seen this in our culture? Have we seen this with, with politics? And I won't even get into that, but every time you flip on the news, someone's gnashing their teeth at somebody else, right? Someone's got this anger, this, this deep-seated hatred towards someone. We know that we've seen it all around, but maybe the most important question that we could ask ourselves as believers is, could we possibly have been gnashing our teeth lately at someone? We know that we're not immune to it, right? And sometimes we see Christians, even in the church and other settings, we see Christians gnashing their teeth sort of at other Christians. Down to verse 14, the wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow. They stand ready to attack, poised. They're ready for battle. They're ready to fight, to cast down the afflicted and the needy. The afflicted here is actually the, the root of the word that we looked last week in, in verse 11, and it's translated humble. We talked about the alternate meaning of being meek, that the meek will inherit the land. And, and these ones ultimately are, are the target here, these humble, low, uh, maybe poor, afflicted people. They're already down, and still again, they're being uh, just more is being heaped on top of them. Bows are, are um, bent, swords are drawn, ready to attack, ready to, to persecute them even more. To slay those who are upright in conduct. It's actually a beautiful imagery here um, that we see. In the Hebrew language, the, the word uh, for slay is tabach, and tabach means to slaughter, but very particularly, it's the slaughtering of livestock or animals for consumption, to be eaten. Now, concerning animal sacrifice, there's actually a different word used, so we know that it's not for that. Uh, so we can see here that the, the evil, they seek to slay the upright, they seek to consume us, they seek to devour us, is the picture that we get here. But who do they seek to slay? The upright. That word is a Hebrew word, tamim. And tamim means without blemish. It means without spot, full, complete, perfect, undefiled, or whole. It refers to a person's state of being, of course, but over half the times that it's used in the Old Testament, it's actually used of an animal destined for sacrifice, an unblemished, perfect animal. And we know that the blemished animals were not traditionally for consumption, right? They were set apart for this spiritual service, if you will, for sacrifice in the temple. The spotless ones really um, were, were, were very different um, than what we would see as a normal blemished animal. And so this idea here refers to more than just the action or the attempt at being upright. It's not our 
uh, actions. It's not our, our will. It's not the things that we do that make us upright, that make us unblemished. But it's really the state of being that we are in. And that state of being we have is, is really through Christ alone. See, in Christ, we are without blemish. We are complete. We are full. We are undefiled. We are whole. That's how he sees us. And likewise, like these sacrificial animals in a sense, we're supposed to offer ourselves as, what, as a living and holy sacrifice to the Lord. So see, the Lord sees us very different than the wicked and the evil see us. They see us very differently. The wicked see us as, as meat to be devoured, to be chewed on and spit out. But the Lord sees us as a perfect, unblemished creature set apart for that service. Another thing that we see of the wicked found in verse 21 is that he borrows and he does not pay back. We know that really that's tantamount to stealing, right? I have the opportunity actually on, on Sunday, I'm going to be teaching up in the high school and Pastor Matthew is taking the, the youth uh, through the Ten Commandments and we're going to be looking at thou shalt not steal. This is actually a form of stealing that we're going to be going over. Someone that, that lends or that, that uh, borrows without the intent of paying back. They know what, what they're doing. So the evil here are breaking commandments, and most likely this is not the only one that they're breaking, right? There's probably much more that's going on. And lastly, down in verse 32, we see that the wicked spy upon the righteous and they seek to kill him. So again, the idea of plotting to do something. First, they spy. They seek us out. They see what's going on. They make a plan. Again, premeditated. And they seek to kill us, to attack, literally to kill or to destroy they seek to kill the righteous. So in all of this, why are we told not to fret? Remember verse 1 at the very beginning? Don't fret. Don't worry about all this stuff that's going around. How in the heck are we supposed to do that? Well, hopefully you remember we went over the little prescription last week. If you guys weren't here, if you missed it, if we look at the first word or words from each of the first seven verses of this psalm, we see what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to fret not for trust, delight, commit, and rest. So we covered that last week, how not to fret, but what we didn't cover is why. Why shouldn't we fret? You may ask, you say, I know I'm not supposed to do it, but why? What's the purpose? Why shouldn't I be afraid? Why shouldn't I be worried? Why shouldn't I be angry even at what I see around me, at the injustices that are happening in this world? Well, verse 9 of the psalm gives us really the, the simple short answer. It says, for evildoers will be cut off cut off. It's a pretty heavy idea, actually. Um, it doesn't mean like a, a crazy driver that cuts you off on the freeway, right? Or maybe it's some of you cutting, else, cutting somebody else off, right? That's not the idea here. It doesn't refer to a, a, you know, a, a spoiled child with a trust fund who's got all kinds of money coming in, and then because he does something wrong or bad, his parents do what? They cut him off. They say, uh-uh, no more. That's not the case here. Really, the idea of this literally means to cut down or to destroy. It's often used of talking about shrubbery or trees that would literally be cut down. They would be destroyed. The idea is that the wicked will be no more. They will be cut off. They will be cut down. The idea also literally means, or excuse me, the word means to be cut in two. And we see a picture of this actually um, throughout the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15. And it's this idea of cutting a covenant. Some of you may have heard this before. You might be familiar with this. Uh, 
what would happen is, is they would take an animal, they, they would cut it in two, they would separate it, and they would walk through it. And that would be kind of a, a sign or sealing of that covenant. And in Genesis 15, uh, the Lord actually makes a covenant with Abram. He's promised him the, the land, and then he says that his descendants are going to be uh, like the stars in the sky, that you wouldn't be able to count them. And Abram says, Lord, how will I know this is true? And the Lord says, bring to me animals. And he did, and he cut them. And traditionally, again, the, the person making the covenant would walk through, but in this case, the Lord actually walked through in the form of a flaming torch. It says that that torch passed through. It walked through the pieces of the animals. In verse 18, it says the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. That's the word cut off. So we could literally render it as the Lord cut a covenant. He cut a covenant with Abraham. And so it's an interesting idea here when we see this, this idea of something physically being cut in half. I'll let you guys kind of wrestle with that potential meaning there for yourselves and maybe do a little further study on that. But it's an interesting idea. And I think this, this wording that they will be cut off, there's, there's such, a, such a, stri a strict wording to that, I guess. Um, it's, it's really very descriptive of what will come, what the end will be for these people. Verse 13, as we continue to look uh, at these verses concerning the fate of the wicked, it says, The Lord laughs at him in reference to the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. God laughs at the feeble attempts of the wicked. Can you imagine the wicked trying to, to do these little schemes and, and God from above is, is looking down. He's laughing at them. We see this in Psalm 2 as well. It says, why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Those of you that have been around Living Truth for a while have maybe been uh, fortunate enough to be blessed with Pastor Michael's impression of the little ant, right, screaming back up at God. You guys may have heard that before. And the, the idea here is, you know, these, these people are, are committing these evil, wicked deeds, and God looks down, and he, he's laughing at them, like, so what? What are you going to do? Do you realize who I am? Do you realize how insignificant you are? And I won't even do the voice that Pastor Michael does because I don't think I'll do it justice. But this little ant is kind of, you know, hey, you, you don't know what's going on. I'm going to do all these things. And with a squash of a foot, right? Or with a, the pushing down of a thumb or maybe with a, a breath of his mouth, the Lord can destroy these people. He laughs at them. Why? For he sees his day is coming. The Lord knows. The Lord knows that this is temporary. The idea is back in verse 10 where it says, in yet a little while and they will be no more. See, the Lord sees all. In his omnipotent power, he knows everything. And really, in his hand is the life of every living creature. We know that from Job chapter 12. And not only does God know the end result, not only does he know what's going to happen, he's actually the author of it. He's the one that's, that's going to bring it to pass. Down to verse 15, their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. The same imagery is as the verse up above, but the irony here is that the sword that they draw and, and the bow that they bend is actually going to come back upon them. See, in our culture, we have this idea of karma, right? It's what goes around comes around. You'll get what you got coming. That's kind of what we would say. But really, this actually here is a picture of God's righteousness, of his judgment, 
he laughs at them, remember? He knows what's going to happen. Verse 17, for the arms of the wicked will be broken. This speaks not, not literally, not physically necessarily, but mainly of their power or their ability. They'll be cut off. They won't be able to do it anymore. They will have no power any longer. But the Lord sustains the righteous. The word sustains means to bear up or to hold up, and at times physically, to, to lift, to provide support for, to lift up and, and to bear. The picture is that the Lord, he, he breaks the power of the wicked, he cuts it off, but he himself is the power of the righteous. He himself will bear up. He will break the arm of the wicked, but his arms, his arms will bear up the righteous. Verse 20 says, but the wicked will perish. They'll be gone. They'll die. They'll be destroyed. As simple as that. And the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastor, which references back to verse 2 from last week, talking about the grass and the green herb that will wither, that will die off. It's here just for a short season, right? Here today, gone tomorrow. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Similar picture in Psalm 68. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. You see, the wicked will be here for just a short while, just like us. Compared to eternity, this is really like the blink of an eye, snapping of a finger, like a vapor, like smoke. We've talked about all these references here. And this is the reason why we should not fret. See, the perceived prospering of the wicked is short-lived, and then comes their judgment. Judgment awaits. They'll ultimately reap destruction, we're told. When we think of an eternity of destruction, it doesn't sound pretty, right? No one's going to raise their hand and sign up and say, yeah, I want an eternity of destruction. I don't mean to make light of that because that is truly, really what will await these people. But it happens. It happens to people. They either simply don't know God, they may refuse to acknowledge Him, they may mock Him, whatever it is, but they're not living with an eternal perspective. See, regardless of what you believe, eternity is there. If you don't believe in eternity, maybe because you can't see it, maybe because you can't comprehend it, you don't fully understand it, doesn't make any difference. That eternity still exists. Take gravity, for instance. You might say, well, I can't see it. I don't really understand how it works. Is it real? Ah, eh, maybe, maybe not. Let's take a gamble. Go up to the top of the Empire State Building, say, eh, I don't believe in gravity. I don't think it's real. I don't think it exists. If you jump off the top of that building, it's not going to be pretty. We all know that. We know that gravity exists. You can experience gravity. And likewise, with eternity, it doesn't matter if, if you don't believe in it, if you don't want to think it's real, if you don't believe in God because you can't understand Him, then the result's not going to be pretty. We're told that right here. No matter your belief. See, we live in a world where we're told that your truth is your truth, Right? Live your truth. Truth is relative. All these different phrases that we hear. But the reality is there is only one truth. Amen? Amen. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. 
that truth is, well, it's true. It's, it's fixed. It's unchanging. It is what it is. No matter what your belief, you don't get to define it. You don't get to interpret it. You don't get to change truth to fit your needs. There's one truth. There's one creator of truth. There's one definer of truth. And it doesn't matter your belief. It doesn't matter your feelings. It doesn't change the fact that truth is truth. We know that it's appointed for men to die once, and then comes the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. That judgment ultimately is your door to eternity. There's two doors. Which door are you going to go through? There's an eternity of beautiful glory. There's an eternity with the Lord that awaits to those who believe in Him, to those who have their trust in Him. But there's another door as well. And that door is, is it's judgment, of course, but it's, it's being cast into the lake of fire. It's hell. Eternal damnation, punishment. That is what awaits the wicked. See, for the wicked, this life that they live, this is as close to heaven as they'll ever know. Think about that for a second. It's as close to heaven as they'll ever know. But for those that put their faith in the Lord, for those that believe in him, this life is as close to hell as they will ever know. Because as Pastor Matthew told us this last Sunday, the best is yet to come. We have a future glory that awaits us. But the wicked don't see it. To them, this is it. This life is all that there is. They put all their stock in the, uh, in the earthly, in the here and the now. They say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's it. They don't know anything beyond that. In 2 Corinthians 4, uh, Paul is speaking of being afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And he tells us in verses 16 to 18, therefore we do not lose heart. Though the outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal. I believe here that Paul had an eternal focus. See, the things that we face, the evil in this world, the things that maybe affect us personally, maybe we've been the recipients of some of this evil, some of this wickedness, it's only light and momentary. And I don't know what some of you may have gone through. It may be pretty bad, but I would venture to say that it probably isn't where ne anywhere near as bad as what Paul went through. He was imprisoned numerous times, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. His own people, by the way, the Jewish people. Three times beaten with rods, he was once shipwrecked, a night and day spent at sea. He was on frequent journeys and in danger from rivers, robbers, his own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city and in the wilderness, dangers at sea amongst false brethren. 2 Corinthians 12. All these things I would argue that he viewed as temporal and producing in him an eternal weight of glory. Now, this isn't to say that he didn't find it difficult. If I, if I asked you guys to raise your hand, I'm assuming most of you would say that you find it difficult seeing this wicked around us, seeing all these things happen. 
doesn't mean that it's not going to be difficult. Paul himself, after going through all of these things in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. See, God had rescued him from this physical, this outward thing that he was going through. We don't know exactly what it is, but he was rescued from that. Yet he was still awaiting a future deliverance to come. And yet he will deliver us. See, Paul was looking ahead for this future vindication of the righteous. Can I ask, church family, are you devoted to God? Are you committed to God? Not just when things are easy, but when things are difficult. When things like what happened to Paul. When other things that happen in your life that I know aren't easy. The loss of a loved one or a job or so many other things that happen. Is your trust, is your confidence, is your faith in the Lord? And are you committed to him? Back to Psalm 37, all the way down to verse 35 as we continue looking at the end of the wicked, says, I have seen a violent, wicked man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. These verses here are in contrast to the righteous that are actually mentioned in Psalm 1. It says, he, the righteous, will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked stand in the, will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. One commentator says this, The godly are pictured by the fruitful tree, Psalm 1-3, and the ungodly by the luxurious, overbearing, towering shrub or tree, planted in its native soil where its roots can go down deep, not only did this tree die and fall, but there was no evidence left behind that this tree had ever been there at all. So God will do with the wicked who appear to be successful and permanent, but are destined for judgment. Final verse in examining the wicked, 38. But transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. Transgressors here are the ones who rebel or who revolt, and specifically against God. And it's a willful rebellion in contrast to the transgressions of, of believers. We all sin, we all continue to make those mistakes, but hopefully they're not willful rebellion. And they will be destroyed, annihilated, or exterminated. So what about the righteous? We've, we've looked at the wicked and we've seen their end. What is the end that awaits the righteous? Their vindication. We know from verse 6 that at the time of judgment, he'll bring forth our righteousness as the light. Verse 18 says, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. He knows. That's the Hebrew word yada we looked at last week. He knows intimately. He knows us intimately. He knows our desire for righteous living and blameless living. Not that we ever will attain it. Not that we're perfect. No. But we desire it. And the Lord knows that. He sees that in us. And their inheritance will be forever. Not just the land inheritance, which we spoke about last week, but 
but there's a future inheritance that Matthew touched on from, from Hebrews 4. There, there yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. See, the promised land itself never was really truly that land of rest. There was constant famine and warfare and people fleeing and evil. But there is an inheritance that will remain, an inheritance that will be forever. Verse 19, they will not be ashamed in the time of evil. And in the days of famine, they will have abundance. This speaks of the Lord's provision, not just eternally, but even in the here and now. There's a sustaining grace that he gives us in this life. He also gives us protection, verses 23 to 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he, God, delights in his way, the way of the man. God delights in our ways when our ways are established by the Lord. When he falls, 24, he shall not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Established can also mean uh, to be ordered or to be secured. And see, when we allow God to direct our steps, to establish our steps, he's delighted in us. It's the same word that we looked at last week in in verse 4. We're to, to delight ourselves in him simply because of who he is, right? We talked about that. But when we follow his plans, he is delighted in us. What a beautiful picture that is. Verse 24 tells us that we're so secure that when we walk in his way, even if we stumble, and we will, amen, God will pick us back up. He'll set us back on our feet. He'll point us in the right direction. He'll encourage us to keep on going. And he'll be there holding our hand, it says. Another verse 24 from the book of Jude, actually, verses 24 to 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominions, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So he can keep us from stumbling. He picks us up when we do stumble. Why is that? Because he's our father. Our Father delights to see His children walking and walking well. He delights in teaching us how to walk. It's a process. As a father teaches a young child, I look forward to that stage and what I know will be probably just like the blink of an eye in a few months here, holding my my little child, holding her by the hand, helping her walk, reassuring her that it's going to be okay, being right next to her, walking alongside her. That's the picture here, that God walks alongside us. He will hold our hand, hold us up. Verse 25, as David's recalling his life and passing this wisdom down onto Solomon, as we talked about last week, he says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken. I have never seen his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends. All his descendants are a blessing. Few important things to note about this. The first would be that this is David's personal experience, right? So he's recounting this as an older man who, in his experience, he's never seen the righteous forsaken. He's never seen the descendants of the righteous begging bread. The Lord has always provided. But the second thing to remember is the same thing. This is David's experience. And I think we all know that that doesn't always happen in this world, right? Doesn't mean that people will never beg for bread. But the Lord has provided a way to take care of his people. Unfortunately, the people don't always share the wealth. 
God has given enough wealth on this earth to provide food and, and shelter and, and clothing for everyone. God's desire is that no one would be without, that no one would be lacking. But yet it seems to happen. I was reading an article in Business Insider. Do you know that this year, starting in March until October 31st, when this was published, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos saw his wealth rise by an estimated $48 billion. Billion, with a B. Rise by $48 billion. That's not just what he has. That is how much he gained. The founder of the video conferencing platform Zoom grew his nest egg by over $2.5 billion. Casino magnate Sheldon Anderson saw his wealth increase by $5 billion, while Elon Musk saw an increase of $17.2 billion. When you add up the numbers, billionaires in the United States alone have increased their total net worth $637 billion during this pandemic. Yet at the same time, more than 40 million Americans filed for unemployment, with tens of millions of Americans out of a paycheck, and the stock market plummeting by 37%. How is it that the rich have continued getting richer? See, this is maybe one type of evil that's a little more practical to us right now that we see. How is it that this happens? See, the way things are on this earth are not necessarily how God intended them to be, right? But the hearts of man are evil, they're greedy, they seek after their own desires, and unfortunately, the poor seem to get preyed on. And see, these others, they've, they've sought their own pleasure, their own desires, and in many cases, they, they may have even neglected the poor or really truly done little to help. It seems that some people get much more than their fair share, while others seem to suffer. And see, if a good man, uh, if a good man is, a, is wasteful, if he's ruthless, if he does these other things, God doesn't necessarily intervene. God will ultimately give that person the ability to exercise their free will. And in many cases, it will lead to their ruin. Sadly, a path that will lead to their destruction. Many of you may have also heard of uh, Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos.com, recently uh, died in a fire at a home in Connecticut, 46 years old. And as more reports came out, it seems that there was a little more to the story. It's still being investigated, and they actually don't know exactly what happened in this fire, but they do know that Tony uh, suffered with a problem with alcohol for many years. They know that he had a drug problem, mushrooms, ecstasy, even nitrous oxide he would inhale, depriving himself of oxygen, essentially trying to escape. We don't know exactly what he was trying to escape, but he was, he was clearly looking to, to, to depart from his mind from this, this thing, this evil that was maybe around him or, or within him, he would go for runs in the snow barefoot. He would deprive himself of sleep, go on extreme binges of fasting and dieting. It would appear that he was seeking really something to escape reality. And that's sad. He actually died with a fortune of what's estimated to be at least $700 million, and all of that without a will, believe it or not. But at the end of the day, see, Tony didn't have a view of eternity, most likely. We, we don't know his story completely, but... We know that he possibly couldn't even see into the near future. He was actually scheduled to go into a drug rehab the next week. Yet had already set up. He never made it. So he was seeking something. 
but he didn't find it here on earth. With all of his wealth, with all of his fortunes, he couldn't find it. Now, I don't reference that article or any of the others to necessarily say that any of the men that I, I talked about are, are evil men or, or wicked men. That's, that's not the case, but I think you get the picture of what's going on. Back to verse 28. The Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. We see again the wording that the wicked will be cut off. Their fate is already planned, essentially. And we see that the Lord loves justice. That's the whole reason that we need not fret. Ultimately, justice is coming. We know that at that coming day, justice will be served, so to speak. The righteous will be vindicated, and punishment awaits the wicked. But the righteous will not be forsaken. He does not forsake his godly ones. Alludes to the words from verse 25. Down to verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and they will dwell in it forever. Verse 9 told us that those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. And now the righteous will inherit the land. See, the ability to dwell in the land forever is, is really because of an ongoing decision to hope in the Lord. God gave this promised land, right? But we know that when Israel entered, they didn't find rest. Why? Because of their continued disobedience. It wasn't a one-time thing. The promise was made, but God said that you must keep my commandments. You must walk in my ways. And they did not do that. It's their, their conscious, ongoing commitment to God and to following his commands. That's what permits the righteous to dwell forever, to inherit the land. And in verse 32, we looked at the wicked spying upon the righteous. And then verse 33 is really the flip side of that. It says, the Lord will not leave him in his hand speaking of the righteous being subject to the wicked, or let him be condemned when he is judged. See, again, our righteousness has been declared by the Lord. We no longer face condemnation. We no longer will face an evil judgment. We should have no fear of that. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 37 it says, mark the blameless man and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have posterity. The literal translation in the Hebrew is actually, for the future of that man is peace. The future of that man is peace. That's what's in store for the upright. Ultimately, peace with God. Completeness, wholeness, this word shalom, right? Peace, perfection. That's the reward that we will receive. Last two verses, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. And this can speak of a personal one-time salvation, and that is indeed only from the Lord. We know that. But it also speaks of deliverance from a personal trouble in this present life, from ongoing deliverance from personal trouble. He delivers them from the attacks and the accusations of the wicked, things that we face from the wicked in this world today, in this life, here and now. Why? Because they take refuge in him, it says. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 145.18, the Lord is their strength in the time of trouble. He is near to all who call upon him. So as we look at the idea of, of the 
coming judgment for the wicked and the vindication of the righteous, we can see that there's really two choices. Wicked, righteous, good, evil. As we opened up with in the beginning. See, there, there's no middle ground, at least in God's eyes. There's no someone standing over here and saying, well, I'm, I'm a pretty righteous person, but I have this little bit of wickedness in me that I commit sometimes. But for the most part, I'm, I'm righteous. On the flip side of that coin, there's no one that goes, I'm a pretty wicked person, but I do these few little righteous things here and there, so I'm, I'm really not that bad. Not so. God doesn't view us that way. There's really no other option. See, there's not three, there's not four, there's not five types of people contrasted in this psalm. There are two types of people contrasted in this psalm. And I'd ask you rhetorically, which one are you? Which one do you want to be? Wicked or righteous? I hope the decision of righteous is an easy one for you to make in light of what awaits us. Would you turn with me to Romans 3? We're going to take a look here. It's something that Paul had to say. Romans chapter 3. See, Paul talks about the fact that the whole world is guilty, that they're under the penalty of sin. And in verse 10, he begins a, a quotation of Psalm 14, where he says, There is none that is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So how do we reconcile that? We just heard there's the wicked and there's the righteous. But here, there's none that is righteous. Well, clearly we know it's an option. And there's really only one way that we inherit righteousness. And that truly is a justification by faith alone. Skipping down in Romans 3 to verse 21, it says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's the only way, belief in Christ Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 5 goes on to tell us that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We all know that's impossible, right? We know that the law was really never even meant to save us, only to point out our sin and our weakness, to show us the need for a savior. And our righteousness isn't going to get us there anyway. Our, our so-called good deeds, the righteousness that we think we have in our own strength and our own power, Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Not to be horribly graphic here, but the idea of a filthy garment is actually used of something that is stained or soiled by a woman's menstrual cycle. That's the, the literal meaning here. Figuratively, it, it's really saying that our, our best deeds, the best that we can come up with on our own, is filthy, it's stained. It's dirty. It's representative of, of the stained hearts that we have, essentially. See, we are only justified, we are only declared righteous through faith and belief in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
See, the Christian faith is really the only faith that doesn't require so-called good works or righteous deeds. All the others do, at least for those that are seeking to inherit the favor of their respective God in that religion. And see, usually they, they pile on all these works. It's just this perpetual uh, work uh, system that you have to do. And in many of these religions, actually, there's really no end, uh, there's no end goal or end result. There's no stand I'll get in. Maybe my, my God will have mercy. But not so with the Christian faith. It is not that way. It is not through ourself, but it's through himself. He is the propitiation for our sins. He alone bore our sins. We don't need to atone for our sins. Christ already did that for us. He himself was the atonement, bearing our sins upon the cross. Our sins, not his own. He was that righteous, unblemished, perfect, spotless sacrifice for us. And as we wind down, let's, let's finally look here at how we're supposed to live our lives in light of this uh, righteous state that we can be in if we put our faith and we put our trust and we put our hope in Jesus Christ. Verse 27 says, to depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. See, turn away or, or leave from evil is this idea. You can't be associated with it anymore. You have, you have to turn around and you have to leave it behind. And then you have to do what is good. Just as we looked last week in, in verse 3, um, trust in the Lord and do good. We must remember that our call isn't just to have this, this mental shift and say, okay, yeah, I've got this, this belief in Christ. We know that faith without works is dead, right? And likewise, we must have these good deeds. They're a sign of our faith in Jesus Christ. If we depart from evil and yet do nothing else, what good is that? We're supposed to depart from evil and we're supposed to do good so that we can abide forever. And our final verses in the psalm, 30 to 31. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and the tongue and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. See, the wisdom uttered doesn't come from the heart of a man. We don't have that of ourselves, but it's the word of God. It's the word of God that is hopefully so, so deep in our heart that we can just recite it over and over and over again. And really, because of verse 31 says, the law of God is in his heart. Verse 31. Another verse 31 is Jeremiah 31, 31. Chapter 31, verse 31 that says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Speaking again of this covenant in Jeremiah 23, 5, 6, excuse me, 5 through 6, it says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And this season, this Advent season that we're in, we, we look back, we look back at the first Advent, the first coming of Christ, but we also look ahead. We look back when he first came into this world, his birth, right? 
We look at this branch that we just read about, raised up from the line of David, who came to do justice and righteousness in the land. But most importantly, not just to do justice and righteousness in the land, he came to save those in the land. And he came to save you and he came to save me. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3, 17. And as we look ahead to the second advent, his second coming, he will come together, he will gather his people, and there will be a judgment. And hopefully at that judgment, the righteous of the Lord will enter into an eternity with him. They will get to rule and reign with him forever. They will get to worship him forever, enjoy him forever. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what is in store for the righteous. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for every day that you give us, Lord. We know that tomorrow is not promised. And we know that our time is in your hands, Lord. I pray that no matter where any of us are right now, Lord, that we would constantly seek to draw closer to you. Whether a seasoned believer walking with you for years, or whether it's someone that doesn't even know you, Lord, I pray that that we would all take steps to draw closer to you. I pray this season, Lord, this Advent season, that we would, we would just be thankful. We would have thankful hearts for the fact that you sent your son, Lord, into the world. A clean, perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins and to atone for the sin of the world, Lord. And because of that and that alone, we can be declared righteous. We can have eternity with you, Lord. But it's as simple as accepting that gift, Lord. And I pray that if there's anyone here, anyone online, anyone listening to this after tonight, Lord, that hasn't accepted that gift, just as simply as I would hold up this Bible and I would hand it to you and I'd say, here, this gift is for you. It's free. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. But there's nothing that you need to do but to extend your hand and take it. You must accept the free gift. And that's exactly what God did. That's exactly what God is, is telling us. God is saying, accept this gift of my son so that you will inherit eternal life, so that you will have peace with God, so that ultimately you will have rest. Lord, we ask that you would just bless all in this room, all online, Lord, those that are that our saints, that are your beloved Lord, would you just constantly seek, uh, would we constantly seek to grow more and more in love with you, more and more in the knowledge of you, Lord. We thank you and love you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.